So beginning in chapter 6 of Revelation, things begin to get a bit strange. We are introduced to Christ in that setting that John found himself in in chapter 1. In chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation, speak to and about the seven churches. Chapters 4 and 5, John is then taken to the heavenly realm where we see the Ancient of Days sitting on the throne and the Lamb of God taking the scroll from his hands. But in chapter 6, man, things start getting a bit strange. And since we've taken a break for the last three weeks, a detour for the last three weeks, and since we're now embarking on what seems to be the strange part of Revelation, we need to be reminded that the book of Revelation is not really that hard of a book to understand. In fact, it's no harder to understand than to say the book of Genesis. Because if you can understand Genesis 1.26 when we're told God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, when compared to Genesis 2-7, then Yahweh God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life so that the man became a living being. If you can understand that when compared to Deuteronomy 6-4, where we're told, hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. God, the plural, is one. And he formed humanity from the dust and then breathed life into him. If you can understand the burning bush that was not consumed, the parting of the Red Sea, the plagues, the manna that fell for 40 years, if you can understand and get them, then you should really have no problem understanding the book of Revelation. Because if you can understand the Gospels, God, the eternal and holy God of creation, who in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John 1.1, the one that although existing in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2, 6-8. If you can grasp how the Holy Spirit overshadowed the Virgin Mary and she became with child, as told to us in Luke 3, 35. Or how Jesus walked on water, as told to us in Matthew 14, 22. Or how he fed upwards of 10,000 people with a couple fishes and a few biscuits, as told to us in Matthew 14, 13-21. Understanding Revelation shouldn't be that hard. If you can understand how God stepped down out of eternity, became a man, lived a sinless life, died a sinner's death, rose again on the third day into a real body that could be felt, would eat and drink, and yet could vanish and walk through walls. If you can understand how his sinless life was a, and his willing death paid the sin price for you, then understanding the book of Revelation shouldn't be that hard. I hope you're grasping that the point that I'm making is that we're not dealing with another human when we deal with God. We are dealing with something and someone completely different. A different sort of being 
than all the beings we will ever come into contact with in this realm. God is holy, as told to us in Leviticus 20.26. He is other than us, 1 Samuel 15.29. He is far and above greater than us. He is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we could ever ask or understand. Ephesians 3.20. We will never fully grasp the wonder of God. But that doesn't mean that we can't know Him. The secret things belong to Yahweh our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may do all the words of the law. Deuteronomy 29.29 God has demonstrated for all creation, to all creation, through creation, that He is. And He has given us His word that we might know Him. But we know that it is only through faith that we can truly know Him. Again, what is faith? Hebrews 11.1 1. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, alongside of Hebrews 11.6. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him, for he who draws near to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. You see, because no matter how much evidence God gives to His existence, It's only through faith that you can actually believe in Him. And that's His grand design. Because faith is the language of heaven. And we can know Him. In fact, He desires that we know Him as evidenced by the very Scriptures that I read to you. But He is the only one that can tell us who He is. And He does so in the Scriptures. And that's why it's important that we study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly handling or dividing the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15. And this includes holding to sound biblical tools of interpretation, such as that implicit truths are just as binding as explicit ones, even though explicit truths trump implicit ones. And that you always have to interpret Scripture with Scripture. And that you always must allow the context of any Scripture to dictate the context of any verse. And finally, if God gives you an outline, gives us an outline in a book, it's intended to be followed. Such as the outline of the book of John. The outline there is given at the end of that book. And that outline says this, These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John 20, verse 31. So when, as you read through the book of John, everything that you encounter in the book of John is supposed to be filtered through that divine outline. That outline will tell you exactly why all things are given in that book. All that was written in the book of John is written in order that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And thankfully, God in His tender mercy has given us an outline for this last revelation of Jesus Christ, the one that we call the book of Revelation. And that outline is found in verse 1 of chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show His slaves the things which must soon happen, 
and he indicated this by sending it through his angel to his slave John. So this book, the book of Revelation, and everything that we encounter within it, the seven lamps, the seven churches, the seven seals, the seven plagues, the seven bowls, they're all about Christ. And as we travel further down the wormhole of the seven of the seals and of the plagues and of the bulls, we have to stop as we go, look up, and remember what this outline of this book is and what is the meaning of all the things that we're being told. Because everything that we're reading, everything that we encounter, they're not about that beast. They're not about the plagues or the famines. It's all about Christ. And Revelation is a book that comes with a promise as well. Listen to verse 3 of Revelation 1.3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and keep the things written, which are written in it, for the time is near. And since in both verse 1 and then again in verse 3, a time stamp is given to us there. Verse 1 says, must soon happen. Verse 3 says, for the time is near. And then in verse 3, there's that promise given. We have to make a choice about these verses and the things that are said there. There's basically three options given to us. The first option is that God didn't mean that the time is near. And he doesn't mean that those that read this prophecy and keep it are blessed. He, he was just fooling around. Second option, God meant near but only in the eternal way. And the blessing of those that read this really is just for that last generation of saints to live on this planet Earth. The ones who will be raptured out of the trials and the life that has been the same for all humanity for all time. Or the third option is that God meant what he said. And I'm convinced, though, that if you have been given ears to hear and eyes to see, and if you, if you do look and listen, you will understand that God meant exactly what he said in the opening verses of this revelation. And again, remember that this is not the only revelation of Christ given to us in the Bible. The prophets of old, they were given revelations of Christ. And we have their fulfilled prophecies that we use and we can look to as proof that Jesus is the Christ. And let us consider the flow of the book of Revelation that we've covered to date, everything that we've covered. Because hard on the heels of telling us that this is a revelation of Christ in chapter 1, he then begins speaking to the churches. Churches that were alive and active when this letter was written. John actually knew these churches, these people. And these people knew John. And what was written to them was specific. And it was meaningful to them. It was applicable to each one of them. When the church, the folks in Ephesus, when they got that letter that was entitled to the church in Ephesus, and they read what was written there concerning them, they were con convicted. And they would have repented. And at the same time, the letter written to the church in Ephesus has been a call to repentance to many churches throughout the ages, and all that have read it and have actually applied it and repented have done well. And those that haven't, they've suffered the consequences. 
But the letters written to those seven churches spoke specifically to those people in that day that John lived in. He sp- they spoke of, of their actions and the consequences of not repenting and changes. And since we know chapters 2 and 3 were applicable to them, we have to then understand that the rest of what follows chapter 2 and 3 was also applicable to them. And yes, we can rest assured that what is spoken of and told to us in chapters 4 and 5, the glory of God in heaven, Christ reigning, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, who is the worthy Lamb of God, He was heaven. He was in heaven in their day. He had already taken the scroll from the hand of His Father, and He had already begun opening the seals. You see, The book of Revelation and most of the events that it speaks of have already happened. And at the same time, they're happening right now. And they will happen at the end of the age. A bit confused? Well, don't be. We just need to think about this book differently than what those left-behind guys have told us of how we're supposed to think about it. We are supposed to think about this then differently than how we actually think time works. To understand the book of Revelation, we have to think of it, well, like a... like the ramp in a parking garage. You guys have all been in parking garages before. If you've ever been to a big city, you've been in a parking garage. You understand the analogy that I'm going to make here. You all know that when you enter into that parking garage, you have to understand the signs, the lights, and the directions in that parking garage. Otherwise, you're going to be very confused. Navigating that parking garage is not going to be easy. It's going to be painful and maybe even very frustrating. And much like trying to navigate through the book of Revelation without keeping the theme in mind, And again, the book of Revelation is like a parking garage. It's given to us with signs and lights to help us navigate in order that we can understand that we are going to end up exactly where we are intended to be. And, ever think about this? That that parking garage, it's not a road even though it's made of concrete. If you go into a parking garage thinking that I'm going to enter here and end up in Lawton when I get to the rest of it. Or I'm going to go enter into a parking garage and end up in Dallas. You're going to be sorely disappointed when you get to the top of that parking garage and find out that you've gone nowhere but up. This is not a linear book. Meaning that the events given within it don't happen chronologically, one right after another. This letter is not a chronological timepiece. We're not intended to read or understand the things that were told in it in this fashion. Like, okay, so the seven seals happen, and then the seven trumpets happen, and then after that, the seven bowls happen, and then the end of the age happens. We're not to think of what we're being told speaks about ages or centuries. This book is circular in nation. And it ends where it starts. Where did it start? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his slaves the things which must soon happen, verse 1. And then 
We're told grace to you and peace from the one who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. He has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and might forever and ever. Revelation 1, verses 4 and 6. That's how the book of Revelation begins. It speaks of Christ reigning now, of his church being his kingdom, priest to his God. And those that read and keep this truth, they are blessed. How does this book end? There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And his slaves will serve him. And they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night. And they won't need, have need of the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them. And they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his slaves the things which must soon take place. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Revelation 22, 3-7. What we have studied up until now is the prelude to the rest of the chapters and the events they speak of. Again, chapter 1 is the beginning and the end point of that parking garage. When you enter a parking garage, you always end up leaving from the same place that you start from in a parking garage. Chapters 2 and 3, are they're written to the church, written to churches, and then written to the church age, to us in the church age, in order that we can know how we are to conduct ourselves in the church age. Chapter 4 and 5, they reveal reality. The reality of the eternal and the effects of the eternal on the temporal. God is on the throne right now. There has never been a single moment in time that he was not on the throne. And even though that sea is before his throne, the one that contains the beast, the enemy and the accuser of the saints, even though it's still before the throne, in our understanding of time, Revelation 22 has already taken place. There is no cosmic battle taking place in which the outcome is still yet to be determined. The fate of the world and of all creation is not in question here. And we know this simply because we have been given chapter 22 of Revelation. Saints, realize this now. That new heaven and the new earth, that would happen, that's what happens at the end of the age, that has no effect on your standing in Christ now. In fact, our standing in Christ now is solid simply because our standing is based on Christ, the one that is the lion that's from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the one that has overcome so as to open the scrolls and its seven seals, as told to us in Revelation 5.5. Christ has overcome. Not He will overcome, and He's not overcoming either. 
Christ having overcome is what makes him the Lamb of God. This is what makes all that is told to us after the events of chapter 5 able to even happen. And we must grasp what is said of Christ back in chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, where we're told, Worthy are you to take this scroll and open its seals because you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and you made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth he has already made us priests to our God and we will reign upon the earth and both of these things are done deals they are finished it is completed and this is why Christ called out with his last breath Te telestai. It is finished. He didn't cry out there. Let the games begin. Okay, now I have a chance, or it's finished, or to be continued. He cried out, It is finished. The end of the age as we know it was settled that morning 2,000 years ago. And in all reality, it was settled before the foundation of the world because we are told in Revelation um, 13, 8, that he was the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. And to show you how the book of Revelation is like a parking garage, that the events contained with it are circular, just think about it this way. The seven seals aren't open before the seven trumpets are blown. And the seven trumpets aren't blown before the seven bowls are poured out. It happens this way. The first five seals are open, which then brings about the seven trumpets. And the first six of them are blown, which brings about the bowls, with the first six bowls being poured out. And it's at that point that that seventh seal is open, that last trumpet is blown, and that last bowl is dumped. The end of the age and the new heavens and the new earth. And as we begin looking at the opening of the scroll and the four horsemen that are spoken of in our account today, we need to understand why this is all important to us. Because we're humans. Which means that every one of us are inherently, by nature, selfish. All of us are. And God knows this about us, which is why he gave us the book of Revelation, because we need to see Christ in relationship with us. Because we have a hard time grasping the truth that we are not the most important generation of people that have ever lived on this planet. That our generation is not the reason why God created everything. Because we actually think, if you think about this, we actually think here now, we all collectively think that we, this generation, we are the height of civilization. Man has never been better than us. And at the same time, at the same time, we will say right alongside of that, that man has never been more evil than we are right now. It's all about us. And this is simply not true. 
We have always, humans have always been the same, and we are no different than Adam and Eve were. We have the same hopes, the same dreams, the same selfish and self-centered understanding of the kingdom of God. The same reality that Adam and Eve faced looks us square in the face every single day because there is evil in this world. And we all know that there is something inherently wrong within creation. And we don't understand because death isn't natural. It doesn't make sense. And at the same time, we all know, every single one of us knows that we were each individually created special. Each of us have dreams, aspiration, hopes, and the thought, again, that we are individually meant for greatness. And then, life beats us down. And we wonder about all this. And we can't make sense of any of it. So we come up with this humanistic worldview that says that God is not the center of the universe. He didn't create all things for His glory. And that He's not the Savior of the world. And for this reason, we don't understand the signs of the times that we live in. What we need is a biblical worldview if we're to understand the why of life. And this is why we are given the revelation of Jesus Christ and the truth told to us in Revelation 6, 1 through 8. Then I looked when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying as with the voice of thunder, Come, And I looked, and behold, the white horse, and he who sits on it had a bow, and he had a crown given to him, and he went out overcoming and to overcome. Again, John saw this vision 2,000 years ago. Jesus takes the scroll simply because he can, because he is the Lamb of God, the Lion from the tribe of Judah, the one who is worthy to take the scrolls and open the seals, He has stepped forward. He has taken the scroll from the Ancient of Days, the one that's seated on the throne, and he now opens the first of the seals. And what he does, one of those four living creatures around the throne, he commands with a voice of thunder, Come, enter in the white horse and the one seated on it. Now, there are those that have said that this has to be Jesus because he's sitting on a white horse. And if you've ever seen a good cowboy movie, you know that the good guy always comes riding in on a white horse. And you add to that fact that he's given a bow and a crown and he becomes overcoming. These are all indications this has to be Christ. But that's not good biblical exegesis. You see, there's another time that a prophet saw four horses in a vision from God when he was taken here. Zechariah spoke of seeing four horses. He did so in chapter 1, and he does so again in chapter 6. And in both instances, those four horses and the horsemen are always linked together. One is not separate from the others. Add to that that the rider here is carrying a bow and not a sword as we're told Christ is carrying in chapter 19. And the bow that is given to him here, the Greek word that is used there, is only used once in the entire Bible, and it's used here. And that Greek word is toxon, T-O-X-O-N. It's translated here as bow. But interestingly enough, we humans have taken that root word and have come up with our own words called 
toxin. And also, the crown that he wears isn't a crown of royalty. It's actually better translated as a wreath or a temporary crown, like those crowns that the victors in the Roman Olympic Games wore. And finally, we're told what this writer does. He goes out overcoming and to overcome. Again, Christ does not need to go out overcoming and to overcome. He's already overcome. He did that on the cross of Calvary. The rider of this white horse is representative, merely representative of what the other three remaining horsemen collectively do. He goes out and he rules his dominion. And we think it's strange or even wrong that Satan is allowed dominion over this world. As a matter of fact, we want to put blame on God for the evil that's in this world. Even though in this instance, Al Gore is right. We humans have ruined the earth. We have polluted it. And not just the earth, but all creation. We sold the title deed that had been given to us for a piece of fruit that was part of the realm that we had dominion over. And what is told to us in verses 3 through 8, these are nothing more than the effects of our sin and the reign of the one who we sold this title deed to. Verse 3, And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come, this is the pattern, every time that the, with the four horsemen, every time that the Lamb of God opens one of the seals on the scroll, one of the angelic beings around the throne utters that command, come. And when they do, we are told the effects of them coming. Verse 4, And another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sits on it, it was given to him to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another. And a great sword was given to him. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sits on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, one chonix of wheat for one denarii, three chonix of, bar of barley for one denarii, and don't harm the oil and the wine. There's been speculation as to what is meant by this. There are those that think the book of Revelation is an end times playbook. They say this is speaking about the end of the world and a worldwide famine that will affect everyone except the super rich. But the reality is, there have been severe famines since the beginning of human history, at least after the fall of Adam. Again, remember Genesis and Joseph. And in every instance, it's always the super rich that are not affected by a famine. Never hear of Pharaoh not eating during those seven, those 14 years of the famine. And whenever there's a war happening, those that are affected by it in those areas, there's always a famine there. Most of us here don't understand that truth. But if you were alive during the first or the second world war, even in this country, you remember the rationing of the food and supplies that happened. And if you're a bit younger, say my age and around there, 
you may remember the cry of Rodney King. Why can't we just all get along? And this is what is meant by taking peace from the earth. Humans just can't get along. Why? How you answer this question will be reflected by what your worldview is. The humanistic worldview will tell you that we can't get along because of racial biases, because of systemic federal political biases that preclude us to act in certain ways, even though humans, at their core, are basically good people. All we need to do to rid the world of all this angry and hatefulness it's just get rid of the white male control, the republic form of government, replace it with socialism. Oh, not the socialism that we've seen for the last 150 years that have killed billions of people, real socialism that has never ever come about. This is the worldview of those that are outside of Christ. And unfortunately, even some that claim Christ but those that have a biblical worldview, we have a real answer, a solid and a truthful answer. We know that people are not inherently good, that we at our core are evil and selfish. And what we're told in verses 7 and 8, these things, they are just merely a culmination of what that rider on that white horse is doing. And what we have chosen as a people instead of obedience. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the, fourth of the, the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and he who sits on it had the name Death, and Hades was falling with him, and authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with a sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. And this is what we have brought about what we have actually chosen instead of God. And saints, within these verses, there is danger found. Not, not the danger of the death or the plagues or the famines. There is danger in our midst at this very moment because of what we are told, what these four horsemen are doing. One that we need to be aware of, that you need to actually sit up and listen to and take heed of. What danger? The danger that Jesus warned us of, warned us of in Matthew 7, verses 15 and 16. Beware of the false prophets who, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. You see, it's always, always false prophets, false gospel that is allowed to infect you, that we are warned about in the New Testament by God. Always that. This is the same thing that God through the Apostle John said in 1 John 4.1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. In fact, in almost every New Testament letter, we are warned about those that would come to draw us away from our first love. Those that Christ warned us of in Matthew 24, when he says false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Behold, 
I have told you in advance. There's the warning. Therefore, if they say to you, behold, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. Or behold, he's in their rooms, don't believe them. And he, did this, he gave us the same sort of warning in Mark 13. He then said to you, behold, if they say to you, the false prophets, behold, there's the Christ, or behold, he's there, don't believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But as for you, see, I have told you everything in advance. Same warning we're given in Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, and not according to Christ, which is his word. 1 Timothy 4, 1-3, the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by the hypocrisy of liars who have, seared in their own con- who have been seared in their own conscience, who forbid marriage, advocate abstaining from foods which God created to be shared with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. But this isn't end-of-the-age kind of stuff. Because that's happening now, that's not proof that we are living in the end times, that the rapture is right around the corner. Because Peter, in 2 Peter 1, 1-3 said, But false prophets also arose among the people. Talking about the Old Testament. Just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves, and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. The false gospel has been preached from the very beginning of time, and many believe it. How can this happen? How can people be deceived? Well, we're told that in 2 Corinthians 11. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his ministers also disguise themselves as ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. So as you sit there this morning, the question you should be asking yourself is this, is that why would God allow Satan to disguise himself as an angel of light? Why would he allow a simple-minded fools to be deceived like this? That just doesn't seem fair, honestly. And that's not the half of it. You see, God knows that those that are his, they will obey and they will submit. Which is why he not only allows Satan to masquerade as an angel of light, but as we're told in Deuteronomy 13, the truth is actually more shocking than that. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 13. Beginning in verse 1. 
God says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and that sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us walk after other gods whom you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. Stop the bus. Because what God just said is that there will be prophets who will come and will give signs that will come about. They will make prophecies that will happen. This will happen. And when they say, did God really say that? You know, you really don't have to be zealous. You really don't have to listen to the word of God. You don't have to obey. And they will point to those signs. Or the reality of the prophet, the things that they prophesied is happening as the litmus test there from God. And that you should follow them. And why is this allowed to happen? Listen to what God says. For Yahweh your God is testing you to find out if you love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You see, those that scoff at obedience and submission to the word of God as evidence of salvation, if you are one of them, you need to understand you are in danger. If you think that you do not have to submit and obey to the word of God, I just prayed a prayer, I walked that aisle, isn't that enough? Doesn't that what the Bible says? Confess with my heart, or confess with my mouth, believe in my heart, and I will be saved. Well, I did that. If you actually think that that is the magic that is going to get you into heaven, you need to be scared. If you think that you can have a casual or I don't need to be part of the church. I've got my own personal relationship. You are in danger. And God is not testing you to determine whether or not his salvation stuck or not to you. He is testing you to prove that which we are told in 1 Timothy is truth. That in the end times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by the hypocrisy of liars who have been seared in their own conscience. Same thing that we're told in 1 John 4. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that is coming and is now already in the world. Again, this is not last generation stuff. God allows Satan to disguise himself as an angel of light. And he will send false prophets into the world for the single reason to bring glory to himself by his children in love, obeying and submitting to the commands of his word, which is exactly the same thing he says in verse 4 of Deuteronomy 13. Look at verse 4. You shall walk after Yahweh your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. Saints, the four horsemen that we're reading about today, 
These are not yet to be released. They were released long ago. How long ago? When Adam sold this realm for a piece of fruit and the open trees unto God. When he was redeemed by the lion, by the, tri- by the tribe of Judah, the lamb of God that was slain before the foundation of the world is told to us in Revelation 13.8. And what we're reading about today, what we have been told of in the revelation of Christ, most of it has already transpired. We are now living in that last act of the musical score that has been composed for the glory of God by God. And that last act was part of the first act, which happened when God said, let there be light. And the final act has already happened. And at the same time, for us, it is to come. But because Jesus is the Lamb of God, worthy to take the scrolls and open its seals, because he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, we can know, we can know that as hard as life gets here, as painful and as ostracizing as it is to actually be not conformed to this world, we can know that in loving obedience and submission to the word of God that has purchased us from this realm, he has purchased us from that one that is sitting on that white horse, the one who used to be our master and owner. We can know that we are now free because of the one that this is a revelation of. And we're told the events of chapter 6 in order that we can make sense of this world around us and the evil that's within it. And at the same time, we are given these chapters as a call to obedience. Saints, every single one of us are closer today to meeting our maker than we have ever been before. And you... Every one of us, me, we all need to determine today to submit and obey and to cling to God that is our maker, the God that has redeemed you. You want to know how you fall deeper in love with God? This is how you do it. Because he's already given you all of him. His spirit lives all in you. You don't need more of Him. You can never get more of God. You need less of you. And you get rid of yourself, of your old man, through the willful obedience to the explicit and implicit will of God as told to us in His Word. And your life, the choices that you make, the choices that I make, they are the evidence of our love for God. I can't base how I am doing with the Lord off of you. And you can't base how you're doing with the Lord off of your family members or your friends or any other human. We have to look to Christ. We have to look at His Word. And then we have to ask ourselves, am I obeying it? And does it even matter if you're shown that you're not in obedience to the Word of God? 
Or can you just slough off your shoulders and say, that doesn't apply, that's just your opinion? This is the meaning of the events given to us in our chapter. These are the history of humanity after the fall. But saints, the end is coming for every single one of us. And those that are not the children of God, as proved through their willful disobedience to the explicit and implicit stated word of God, at that end, they will know who they are to fear. The one that will cast them into all eternity, into outer darkness, where they can finally live in the freedom of their willful disobedience to God. Saints, examine yourself. Revelation is given to us for us to understand that this world is not vacation. We are in a battle. The battle has been won. The war has been won. But we are still in a battle. And we prove, we bring glory to God through our lives by the willful submission to His Word of God. And the question you have to ask yourself is this. Does that matter to you? If it does, then praise God. Surround yourself with brothers and sisters that will spur you on towards righteousness. Find somebody that you know is strong in the Lord and follow them. Mimic them. Do not be deceived. The Antichrist is all about us. Don't think that your friends at work that call themselves Christians that do the things that they do, or your friends at school that call themselves Christians and do the things that they do, live the life that they live, don't think for an instant that you are safe by following them. God is worthy of us submitting and obeying. If His blood truly has been shed for our sins, for the remission of our sins, if this is true, then how can we worry about whether or not we are going to have our best life here? We have our best life now in Christ. Let's pray.